Let's give a warm welcome to Dan Davidson this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. I'm on already. Here we go. Wow. Thank you all for the warm welcome. Thank you, Carla. It's a joy to be here with you all. I'm trying to remember um, the first time I met Pastor Ben. I think it was at one of our local clergy gatherings that we have here in Pasadena. We get about 50 to 75 pastors together with the city officials, and we learn some updates. We get together for mutual support. Uh, we pray for the city. Pretty awesome. We do this every month. And so I met Pastor Ben there, but I remember in the fall of 2019, it was just a random clergy gathering. And uh, we have all these tables set up and uh, Pastor Ben sits right next to me. I'm like, okay, that's awesome. Just getting to know this new pastor in town. This is great. And uh, at the time of prayer, Pastor Ben, he shares a very special prayer request. He says, "Um, after this, I'm heading over to talk with a local principal about renting an auditorium for my new church plant. So I was like, wow, that's, that's amazing. So I got to pray for Pastor Ben, and I put my hands on him, and I blessed him. And lo and behold, that principal said yes to starting Vintage here in Pasadena. Now, Pastor Ben may not remember that prayer, but I sure do. Who knows, maybe I'm responsible for finding Vintage a temporary home here at Hamilton. Okay, that might have been like my bad attempt at British humor, so I need to talk to Matt Bird after the service to help me out here. Obviously, I don't believe I had anything to do with God's amazing work in launching Vintage, but I do believe this. For a brief moment, on a random Wednesday in the fall of 2019, the Lord invited me to participate in something powerful that he was up to. And I just got to put my voice in with so many other voices that were praying for this church to get started and to find a temporary home here. There's a little kicker though. That same Wednesday, I had the opportunity to share a message of encouragement to the local clergy that had gathered. And I think this is just so crazy. I was sharing from the book of Haggai. Now, the prophet Haggai was one of the first who had received a message to rebuild the temple of God after the exile. Remember, after Haggai comes Ezra to finish the rebuilding of the temple, and then after Ezra, Nehemiah follows to rebuild the walls. I just think that's so crazy. Because here I am right now with you in this temporary temple that you all have participated in building. And today, it's my honor to share a word of encouragement after the rebuilding of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem because we are in the book of Nehemiah. For today's word of encouragement, I have a question that I'm hoping to answer with two suggestions. 
that will be followed by some good news for us. But I'll unpack that after our scripture reading. So if you have your Bible with you, or I guess your Bible with you is here now. If you've got your Bibles with you, <laughs> let's uh, look at um, Nehemiah chapter 8. That's where we are today. We'll start with verse 11 as we hear the word of the Lord read this morning. Today's passage is Nehemiah 8, 11 to 18. I will be reading from the New International Version. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees, from myrtles, palms, and shade trees, to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Will you all join me in prayer? Let us pray. Father, we are open to you today. We do ask for your anointing. We ask for your spirit to rest on us, to just cover us with your good grace. May we know how much you love us. May this be a holy moment that we have set apart to hear and receive from you today. And Lord, I ask that you would impart your word, your living word in our hearts and on our lips that we may proclaim your good news. And we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here we are in Nehemiah chapter 8. And in this passage, uh, we're introduced to a really ancient tradition that the Israelites used to practice. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths. Now, I think, you know, anytime you learn about a new tradition, it raises a lot of questions, right? It's, what's the meaning of the practice? Why do they do it? And in this passage, they're reintroducing it. So a question like, uh, why did they stop celebrating that tradition? And then we also heard that it's a holy moment. What made it a holy moment, I wonder? Now, I hope to address some of these questions as we unpack the text, but I got to be honest, I'm... I'm a pragmatist. I love to do things. 
Any other pragmatists here? Anyone else that loves doing things? Okay, thank you. I'm not alone because I think the real question for me in all of this is going to be how, right? How, how might we reenact or re-encounter such a holy moment as the Israelites experienced? How might we receive the presence of God? I mean, is that not why we gather Sunday after Sunday? Right? To encounter the divine? To experience a touch? Maybe it's just a touch of God's holiness? And by holy, I mean a moment or an action in life that's been set apart, right? Set apart to glorify God. And those moments come, right? As fleeting as they are, but they come and they go, and I think it's something we all long for. We long to have those moments, those experiences of God's holiness, those moments that are set apart for his divine presence. So, I wonder, how might, again, the pragmatist in me, I want, to, I want that, how might we see God's presence here? How might we encounter that? So to answer that question, I've got two suggestions to offer. But before I offer those suggestions, I need to unpack a little more of the context of Nehemiah. You see, over the past few Sundays, as we've been learning about Nehemiah, we've been learning about the hard work that he and the Israelites put into rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And as this, a quick recap of why this moment is significant and holy, I'd like to remind us of the context here, right, from Ezra and Nehemiah. You see, at the end of the reign of the failed kings over the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah, right, the city of Jerusalem is captured and the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians, 77 years later, a larger empire, right? There's always a bigger fish. The Persian Empire rises up and conquers Babylon. Then the Persian king, Cyrus, decrees that the exile for the Jews is over, and he invites them to return to the city and to start rebuilding their lives with the rebuilding of the temple. So Haggai, as I mentioned, was the first to stand up and start that work on the temple. And then Ezra follows to finish the temple. And then about 20 years later, Nehemiah follows Ezra to rebuild the walls. But this is the crazy part. It only took him and those who returned from the exile 52 days to rebuild the walls. It's taken me over a year to get a permit to do some construction at Rosebud from the city of Pasadena. So upon the completion, the people are so excited. And that's where they are in our passage today. They've gathered back together. And all of a sudden, Ezra gets up with the Levites and others, and they start to read from the word of God. Right? They start to read from the Torah, the law of Moses that was given to Moses in the wilderness. It's a holy moment, Ezra declares. 
because the people had not heard the word read public and probably a generation during the exile. This is probably the first time as in the public center, the word is being read and the people are hearing it and they respond, they start weeping. I think they're just sitting there in awe of what God is, what they're hearing. Think about that like, I mean, we have access to the word of God, right? Here it is, a little, I mean, it's, it's so easy for us. Could you imagine not having this for 77 years? All of a sudden, the word is opened and they hear it afresh. It was a holy day. In fact, maybe I just need to remind us, any day the word of God is read aloud is a holy day. Any moment is holy because the word is read aloud and it's a living word. Praise God for his living word. Praise God that he still speaks through his word to us today. Amen? Amen. Amen. So maybe that's actually the simplest answer to the question I have. How do you reenact a holy moment? Read the word of God aloud. <laughs> maybe it's that simple. I know for me, my own life, hearing the word read has brought me to tears. Maybe not as much as my wife. She, she kind of cries every time the word's read in public. Maybe she's a little holier than I. Or not, I don't know. <laughs> because the people are weeping as they respond. But as we look further at the text, they're weeping not just in awe, but they're also weeping probably out of guilt. Because they're hearing this law read to them and they're realizing, oh wow, we have not been living by it. And so Ezra though, as that guilt is kind of washing away, he turns to the people and he says, stop your weeping. Stop your mourning. Turn your mourning into gladness. And I think here in our text, this is where something takes a surprising turn. I'm backing us up into verse 10, which we didn't hear read, but Ezra instructs them to celebrate after the reading of the word. And he says this to them, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions of them to those whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to the Lord. In other words, a moment of holiness, it's not not only marked by repentance or somberness or an overwhelming awe to the word of God, it's also marked by celebration. They just finished this unbelievable building project. They were ready to party. And what does Ezra tell him? He says, go party hard, <laughs> right? He tells them to eat the juicy, tasty portions of fat, to drink sweet wine with it. I mean, that's extreme, it's a festival for them. And so here we find our first suggestion that I offer if we're hoping to reenact this, this temporary moment of God's presence and a, a sense of holiness. And it's to practice the discipline of pleasure. Now that's a surprising discipline. <laughs> How many of you have heard of the discipline of pleasure? 
Okay, before the little Puritan angel here on your shoulder tells you to tune me out, let me explain, please. Just let me have a minute, let me explain. You see, I came across that language, the discipline of pleasure, in a book written by an ordained priest in the Anglican Church in North America. Okay, for those that don't know, she's one of yours. Tish Harrison Warren wrote this wonderful little book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary to help us recognize that God is near, even in the activities we do every single day. Of course, that concept isn't new, right? Brother Lawrence wrote about that concept in his 17th century collection of teachings, practicing the presence of God. But I think what's new, or at least new to me, is applying this concept to the things we love and enjoy and not just the chores we need to do around the house. So to explain this discipline as the, as she says, the practice of intentionally embracing enjoyment, she borrows from two things that pair really well together, C.S. Lewis and coffee. (laughs) Offering the advice of C.S. Lewis, Warren suggests that the best place to start is where you are. You see, in his letter to Malcolm, C.S. Lewis teaches his young Malcolm that that once, new in the faith, he was learning C.S. Lewis, he, he once believed that you had to summon up what we believe about the goodness, the greatness of God by thinking about creation and redemption and all the blessings of life. But over time, he learned that you actually really need to begin with the pleasures at hand, like a walk in the park or a cup of coffee. That's right, coffee. Coffee's a wonderful place to start. Did you know that there's over 850 aromatic and flavor compounds in coffee and wine only has 200? That's why at Rosebud, we start our youth training with the youth around taste. The very first lesson we give is this spread of all these flavors, spices and smells, things, um, fruits. I mean, just imagine a whole spread. And, and, And the idea there is we want to introduce them to some new flavors, and it's so fun to watch, right? Their expressions as these the taste buds for some of the new flavors they've never tasted come alive. So looking again, my question of re-encountering a, a moment of holiness, I suggest start with what brings you pleasure, happiness, or joy. Start with ordinary pleasures, a trip to the beach, a dinner with your beloved. I love music. A kicking album on the stereo. Or as the text says, start with fat portions of the meat or sweet wine. Or maybe like today, start with the reading of scripture and then go party. Such moments of bliss may also be holy because they're a part of the celebration.
Now, the funny thing is, though, once you get started there, right, and you, you taste something you enjoy, you want more. That's what happened to the Israelites, right? You see, after that first reading that Ezra gave, it says that a key group came back to listen to the law of Moses read again. You see, our text says today, on the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, they gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. And this is what they discovered next, right? It's that ancient practice of the festival of tabernacles. Now that practice had first began back in the time of Joshua when the people entered the promised land out of the wilderness for the first time. The festival of booths, which is also called, it was this annual reminder of their journey in the wilderness with God, that God was their provider and protector. Right, think about that, right? In the wilderness, they literally lived in temporary dwellings. Everywhere they went, right, they had to set up a new booth to live in. And the temple, right, that went with them too. The tabernacle, it was a large tent. They were a nomad people without a permanent home. They were instructed then to establish this tradition when they got to a permanent place for their own collective memory. Or as one biblical scholar points out, The festival was their annual reminder of God's protection and provisions centuries earlier as their forefathers had traveled through the wilderness on their journey from Egypt to Canaan. So in other words, this annual tradition helped them remember all that God had done to protect them. And so they would, once a year, set up temporary booths for seven days. They lived in them to bear witness that their confidence was in the Lord and not in the walls of Jerusalem. And they reenacted this tradition to be reminded that their confidence was in the Lord and not in the walls they just rebuilt. They had to bring that tradition back. They had to remember it. Because over the years, right, after Joshua, their confidence, right, and the judges fell apart, and they wanted kings to rule over them like all the other nations. And so like many traditions, the meaning of that holiday, it slipped away as the culture changed. And they found more faith over time in their town structures, their walls, their buildings. I mean, think about the splendor of Solomon's temple when it was done. Who needs a large tent? They had forgotten over time, the real purpose of that festival as that tradition faded away. I think that's a good pause for us, right? I wonder, what have we built over the years that has caused us to forget who we put our faith in? So I've got another suggestion for us. Here's another suggestion, I think, to keep the holy present. Stay obedient to what the Lord says. Even if it seems foolish or that old adage, practice what you preach. You see, bearing your soul in full vulnerability to the word you receive when God speaks to you and staying vulnerable to that, that is 
the quickest route to a holy moment. And the people here, right, this revitalized group of exiles, they were willing to open themselves up to that, to keep the spirit of the law that they were hearing alive. And they were crazy enough to actually go out into the wilderness, collect all these branches, bring them back, set up these temporary booths, find some palm branches, put some roofs over that, and set them up around the city and live in them for seven days. Could you imagine, right, camping outside your own house for a week? They're practicing what they heard. They also put these booths in very prominent places around the city because they wanted it to touch all aspects of their lives, right? Their own courtyards, the busy streets, the gates, even the courtyard of the temple. And they invited everyone else, it says, to join them. Verse 17, the whole company had returned from exile, built temporary shelters, and lived in them. And by doing so, by practicing what they preached, they extended that holy moment of the reading of the law for seven days. Each day, the law was read aloud again. And they stayed obedient to that and practice what they preach. So if there's one person alive today, I think for me that practices what they preach, you might know someone by the name of Bob Goff. Anyone love the author, this crazy lawyer from San Diego? Never misses a moment when you read his stories of vulnerability to just like bring holiness into the everyday life of others. I'm thinking of one of the stories in his recent book, Everybody Always, about a limo driver. I love this story. So you see, Bob gets invited to go speak at different conferences, and he got invited to Disney World in Orlando, Florida, to speak at a conference there. And the conference organizer surprised him with a limo to pick him up at the airport and take him to the hotel. Now, on the way to the conference, Bob Goff, being his usual self, he just starts chatting up the limo driver. And he finds out that this limo driver has been driving people around for over 25 years and that he was just getting ready to retire and that was his last month. So Bob doesn't miss a beat, right? And he asks that limo driver, hey, have you ever ridden in the back of one of these things? Has someone ever driven you around? And the driver promptly said, heck no, I'd have been fired if I'd done that. So Bob says, okay. Don't worry, you're retiring soon. You might as well enjoy this ride. Let's switch places. And you know what? The limo driver crazy enough to do it, and they switch places, and Bob drives him all the way, rest of the way to Disney World. And then he gets out there, and this is Bob Goff for you. He always carries medals in his pockets. They'll understand this part, but anyway, he gets the man, straightens his jacket, he pins a medal on him. And he speaks these affirming words over him. He says, you are brave. You're courageous. You're even full-hearted. And you are loved. And then he gives him a big hug and walks into the hotel. I love Bob. He's full of these stories of vulnerability, right? Bringing a holy moment into the everyday. Willing to face rejection or just to seem completely foolish so that someone may experience a holy moment with God so that he may show love 
to someone. I think that's a, an example of what it means to practice what you preach and to give room for the holy to show up. Maybe that's actually, as I think about it, what holiness really means. An experience that's set apart to reveal the true heart of God that he loves us. Maybe that's why we're drawn to the divine. To know, to feel, to touch the love of God that covers us. So today I've offered two suggestions to receive God's love or experience a holy moment in a tangible way. Start with where you are, the discipline of pleasure. Be obedient to what you hear. Practice what you preach. I think these suggestions might open us up to receive God's love afresh, to hear his voice imparted upon us anew. But they're just my suggestions. Because I really want to leave you with some good news. You see, those two suggestions of starting with what's good, putting it into practice, they show up in another passage with temporary dwellings. I have no idea how often the Feast of Booths were observed during the days of Jesus. Maybe by then it was just a distant memory again. But at least for the disciples like Peter, it still seemed to leave an impression upon him. Right? Think about that story. You might recall it. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain. And he allowed them to witness the most holy moment. The moment of his transfiguration. His face shone like the sun. His clothes were dazzling white. And next to him appeared Elijah and Moses. You see, with Moses there, something else happened on that mountain. The Torah, the old commandments, the law that the people had been reading was also transfigured into the new commandment, right? The living words of Jesus. And Peter, he knew this was a holy moment. And he also knew how to mark it. So he says, let's set up some temporary dwellings. Right? He says, Jesus, can I build you three booths? One for you and your guests? Because he knew, right, that to do so would give more time for this holy moment to continue. But before Jesus can respond to his question, a cloud from the heavens descends with a loud voice that says, this is my son, the beloved with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And here's our good news today. Jesus, right, the living word of God, can transfigure any moment, any act with his divine word. He, 
He can show up. He can speak. He can show up and speak into any moment or act. He can transfigure any daily experience with the power of his living word. I love this verse from 1 Peter chapter 1 that says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through what? The living and enduring word of God. So I invite you to call upon him. Let him speak. Invite him to share. Invite him to bring a fresh word into your tradition, your moment, your activity. Are you willing to listen to his voice in your everyday life? Are you ready to hear him? So may he, the living word of God, the enduring word of God, speak to you. May he set you apart. May he reveal his glory to you. May he transfigure your experiences. May he bring you into a moment of holiness. Amen.